0: ewire is the uk's vibrant network for women in clean energy kathy mcclay was an academic in electrical engineering until her early 30s she then successfully transitioned into the energy industry she spent 15 years running modeling and analysis teams for a number of energy companies where she focused on supporting commercial decision making for both trading and risk management and investment decisions kathy is best known to most of you where she worked at national grid system operator for four years as head of commercial and then head of future markets, where she opened up the balancing services markets to new participants. Cathy is now a director for Semcorp Energy UK and a visiting professor at Imperial College. Cathy also holds two non-exec director positions, one of which is on the Regen board. So, Kathy's got 20 years' experience in the electricity industry in different roles around Europe. Um, You're well known in the industry for shaping the future of the gas and electricity markets at the Electricity System Operator, and now most recently at Semcorp, where you've started a new role from being head of strategy. I'm delighted to welcome you to this EWIRE podcast, Kathy. I just just started a new can of Diet Coke. You tell me you're a Diet Coke fan. I didn't know Absolutely, that. Absolutely,
1: <laughs> yeah. Although I've now got it down to just three cans a day, so one liter, three cans sounds better. <laughs> I think
0: <laughs> three cans. I love the sound of you opening your yeah. can of Coke.
1: Um, so, Kathy, tell me about
0: your new role. What's what's changed for you most recently?
1: Um, so, I've moved to be Director of Trading and Optimization at Semcor Energy UK, which is really kind of going back to my roots because it's got. We've got about 800 megawatts of flexible generation plus Mm -hmm. our site at Wilton where we've got the largest private wires business in the UK. And so I'm responsible for trying to maximise the revenue from um, our assets within our our risk mandate. And it's going back to my first job in the industry was actually at First Hydro, managing the strategy for pump storage and doing all the modelling for that. So it's great because the whole portfolio is designed around trying to get towards net zero. Um, so there's still a strategic element to it, but I really enjoy the sort of immediate feedback. You know, if you've had a good day or not, because you can see what your trading income was the previous day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're playing like um, it's like a real world game of like. Yeah. Making... <laughs> Sounds quite yeah. fun. So, yeah. so what does that mean? What kind of decisions are you making on a day to day basis?
1: Well, if you take our fleet of flexible plants, we operate, um, we've got 60 megawatts of diesel, which is in the long-term contracts, and then we've got a lot of flexible gas plants, and we've got 60 megawatts of batteries, and we're building 60 megawatts more. Mm -hmm. And it's all about looking at the different markets that we can operate in and optimising where we place the units and when we sell and when we buy to to try and deliver the services grid needs. So a lot of what we do is in ancillary service markets, but we're also in the BM. And then longer term at Wilton, we've got um, CHP plants. We've got two gas CHP and we've got a a biomass CHP and on site as well. We've also got waste energy. Mm -hmm. And there we're providing electricity, steam, and, and sometimes gas to all our customers on site, which includes some big chemical works like SABIC and Huntsman. And there what we're trying to do is optimize the plant to deliver what our customers need as economically as possible, but making sure we've got the right redundancy so we're given the level of service we need. So there's lots and lots of mathematical modeling and stuff involved. Which is my original background, so I get to be quite geeky still, <laughs> even though I can't program anymore. So, yeah.
0: and and how does that work? Like your rel- your relationship with grids? Do you phone them up and have a chat with them, or is it all automated? And 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 with your assets, is that all automated now, or do you have um, to kind of well, the phone the site
1: manager? The way the grid markets are changing are have changed quite a lot, and actually. My job previously was on trying to open up those markets to small players and to non-traditional plants. So they've made great strides. So, for instance, with our batteries, we can take part in a monthly tender for FFR. They've now got a great weekly auction we take part in, and we've just qualified all our batteries for their new dynamic containment service. Mm -hmm. So most of that just happens Um, automatically we tender and stuff but where we talk a lot to grid is about how the markets are going to develop Mm -hmm. any issues we're having do they really need that as part of the service or is it a nice to have because it's really about trying to get rid of as many of those barriers to entry as possible so we get prices down for consumers so there's conversation with grid that way Mm -hmm. but most of the time um We just let them get on with their job, and we provide what we say we're going to provide when we say we're going to provide it. Because with COVID and stuff, they've just had a really difficult time trying to manage the system. And I think they've done a great job of it.
0: Yeah, no, it's been really challenging. I remember talking to Roe in the beginning of like March, April time, and she was saying that like managing the teams and keeping everyone separate and was really challenging. So I imagine it's quite nice, but also challenging for them because you you obviously know them and their systems, and some of them you've designed so you're kind of like someone on the outside that knows how the inside works yeah and quite
1: and, and that's originally why I was brought into grid I spent four great years at grid and really enjoyed it mm-hmm. but the reason I was brought in was I used to operate in the market so I'd taken part in store and provided fast reserve and stuff so coming in and having someone who taken part in the markets helped design them I think it was good But actually, what I realized is I just really like taking part in markets. So now (laughs) it's nice jumping back out and actually looking at how we make money in those markets and how they can be designed better for the future as well. Because I think the grid's target, well, I know the grid target because I wrote it in the real plan, was Mm -hmm. to get all the markets open to one megawatt size by 2023, I think it is. So that's quite challenging
0: yeah yeah really challenging and I guess you'll play a part in that as well in your yeah in your role now so it's it's, right. it's interesting that you're you're still linked in in that way yeah. I think it's that's really
1: yeah I, I like to tell them I'm an intelligent customer but I'm not always sure how intelligent I think I am
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine, yeah I imagine it's nice for them actually to get mm-hmm. constructive feedback I think um, so Kathy, so part of these podcasts is, um, we want, we want people to tell their stories so that other women in the sector can relate. And so, so what I want to do today is just get to know you a bit better. Yeah. So you've, uh, from Northern Ireland. Um, so do you want to talk to me about, about your kind of growing up in Northern Ireland and what that was like? And
1: yeah, well, I, I actually was born in 1968, which is when the trouble started. I know I don't look old enough, but that's no, how old I am now. <laughs> And um, I guess if anyone's seen Derry Girls on Channel 4, I'm from Derry. And I probably still talk that way. I left Northern Ireland in 1987 and I've never lost the accent. But growing up in Northern Ireland was actually, it was only when I moved away, I realised it was different from other places. So I originally grew up in this council housing estate. They built out in the middle of nowhere. There's like three churches, two shops and no pubs and no takeaways kind of thing. But we were really near the North Coast beaches and just had a really nice childhood. Yeah, we saw bombs go off occasionally. I saw a bomb go off when I was about six and I wouldn't go shopping after that. But most of the time, the troubles never really affected my normal life. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to a really great grammar school in Northern Ireland where um, I think I don't know if you know, everywhere in Northern Ireland, there's no private schools, but there is a grammar school system and there's a lot of grammar schools. So I was lucky and passed my 11 plus and had a great education and knew early on I really liked science and maths and computer studies. Mm -hmm. And I was of the era when BBC Micros came along. For those who know me now, they won't believe it, but I used to be really quiet and I was quite an <laughs> introvert teenager and everyone yeah. always laughs when I say that, who know me now. Yeah, but I'm not I used sure to I spend believe hours. It. I spent hours programming my computer, which I thought I'm writing really rubbish computer games and stuff, but I find it really creative and um, yeah, I loved it. And I, did, I left Northern Ireland to come for a year out before university when I was mm-hmm. 19. So it's a great place to grow up. And going back now, it is quite different because you don't see the soldiers and stuff like that that was there when I was growing up. But if anyone watches Derry Girls, that gives you a flavour of what it was like when I was a teenager there.
0: Okay, put that on my must-watch list. I think. Oh, it's very funny. <laughs> the um, so and you to, you mentioned to me before you wanted to be an engineer, so like the age of thirteen. Like, is yeah. that was that rare for a girl? Like, is that?
1: Well, uh, yeah. So I guess I wasn't. And normal, even though I've got sparkling nails and stuff. Now I was a bit of a tomboy. I love playing football and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to be an engineer, but I didn't really know what it was. Like my dad, mom and dad didn't go to university. My dad was an apprentice fitter. My mom worked in the hospital. And um, I got into it in first year at secondary school. We we had design technology, and you had to take all the. You, we did electronics. And you could take all of these passive components and bung them all together. And suddenly you'd have a burglar alarm or I made a radio. And I just thought this was fascinating. So I like I was like the geekiest kid at school. I signed up for computer after school class, electronics, chess and quiz. (laughs) I also played football, but that wasn't a girl sport, so I couldn't play. So I also played netball after school. But it was that electronics, and the computing decided made me think I really want to be an engineer Mm -hmm. and and the engineer I end up as is very different from what I thought I would be when I was 11, 12 years old.
0: Yeah yeah so I guess that's in terms of your career path wanting to be an engineer but that's taking you on a very different journey is that did you have your kind of plans mapped out like from leaving university?
1: (laughs) I, I describe my career as brownie emotion and I think what I'm good at is taking opportunities so I had a year out with Xerox, and I was originally going to program chips to run uh, photocopiers (laughs) (laughs) was my original year. I spent a year out with them. And then when I was doing my undergrad at uh, at Imperial, I really realized I I liked the electrical machines, the big heavy side of it. Mm -hmm. And one of my lecturers moved up to Cambridge, and he said to me, do you fancy coming up and doing a PhD? And that's how I ended up moving from Imperial to Cambridge at the end of my undergrad. And I'd never even thought about doing a PhD. And, um, but that was my interview for Cambridge. And I spent four years there. Mm-hmm. And then I applied for a research fellowship because that's what people did. And I got one. Mm-hmm. But I kind of realized that I love teaching and I love explaining things. That's where I really 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 enjoy explaining things to people I didn't enjoy research and I realized I'm quite an extrovert thinker and most academics are quite introvert thinkers mm-hmm. I tried lecturing at Cambridge I also went back to Imperial and I realized this isn't the career for me I could do it I was considered successful but I had no passion for it mm-hmm. and so that is the one time I actually made a strong decision I said okay what do I want to do with my life And most of my friends were in banking. And so I looked at that because I've got mathematical modeling as my PhD. And the people I met, I just thought, these values don't align with my values. I don't really care about money that much, although I never tell my boss that. I tell him it's really important (laughs) to me. And then one of my friends said, well, what about energy industry? Because they're getting into trading and risk management. And I actually applied to Enron. Yeah. And got offered a job, but I also applied to Edison Mission Energy, who ran First Hydro. And the questions they asked me were far more interesting. And I chose that job because what I've always tried to do, although I said it's brownie in motion, I've never been someone who said, I want that role over there. Therefore, I'm going to do all these intermediate steps. It's been really important for me to enjoy every role I've done. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'd be a nightmare. You know if I get bored, if I don't enjoy it, i'm I'm dreadful. So that was my first major choice, and after that, things have just come up. I've been approached, and I've sort of taken a step back and said, "Would I like to do that?" So mm-hmm. that's how I ended up in Amsterdam and then went to British energy, and I got the opportunity to go out to France for three years. It was fantastic like my French is still, I speak French with a really strong Northern Irish accent, just like I speak English with a really strong Northern Irish accent. And then the opportunity to go to Brit as well, it wasn't something I'd ever considered. But when people sold it to me and thought about it, I thought, yep. So I think my career hasn't been planned, but anytime an opportunity's come up, I've considered it well and thought, is that something that I would enjoy doing? Mm -hmm. And that, Fits with my values, and I think is worthwhile, um, and and that's been my career.
0: Yeah, that's 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 really good, and I think is so is that kind of your message to people? I guess is to to stick with your values and things that you enjoy, and kind of use that as a kind of test. I well, guess like
1: everyone's different. I think like some people know they really really want to be CEO. For mm-hmm. instance, like my old CEO John Pettigrew decided at, at grid, he decided when he was a uh, He was on the graduate scheme. He wanted to be CEO. And then I think you can map it out and do jobs that you don't enjoy. But that's just not me. Mm -hmm. And so I think being true to yourself. And I think some people might have thought, well, you know, a great Kathy was managing like 100 people. She knew lots of people. And I moved initially when I moved to Semcor. I had a team of zero initially Mm -hmm. when I arrived or that was the plan and then I kept getting given more stuff like regulation capacity market and ancillary services because they're all things I've done in the past and now maybe I have a team of 16 and that might for some people be seen as a step back mm-hmm. but for me it's not I'm really loving it I'm a year in and I find it really fulfilling and for me I have to be intellectually stimulated but mm-hmm. know that I'm doing something important so My message, I guess, is do what you feel is right. Mm -hmm. It won't necessarily be the same as what I feel is right, Mm -hmm. but you'll know. And you spend so much time in your job. It's a cliche, but if you don't enjoy it, that's a kind of a miserable
0: existence. Yeah, you spend, I think you spend longer with your work colleagues than you do your your life partner or something like that. I think that, yeah, it's definitely definitely someone, you've yeah, people you've got to enjoy and an environment you've got to be comfortable in, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned before, like in terms of yeah, your boss, like having respect for your boss is kind of one of the most important things for you.
1: Yeah, it's funny 'cause I'm not I'm not terribly ambitious. Um I don't have to be in charge as long as my boss is, is good. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy being just knowing that I'm doing a good job. Like most people who know me think I always take over anyway. So I don't have to formally be in charge is what I mean. <laughs> But it's really important for me to have a boss that I respect and I think is good. I've got that in my current boss and I've been lucky. Mostly I've worked for people I really, really respect and I've Mm -hmm. learned a lot from them. And on the one, maybe two occasions where that hasn't been the case, you still learn a lot as well. But as long as I know I'm contributing and I'm in a role where I can really make a difference, I don't have to be in charge, although I'm told, yeah, I naturally take over quite a lot.
0: (laughs) I think I've I've heard that joke about myself, actually, when Merlin's chairing an event or something, and I'll text him (laughs) and I'll tell him what questions I want him to ask. And he's like, oh, it's not actually me in charge up here. It's actually Rachel sending me messages on the phone. Yeah, yeah.
1: backstreet driving of the highest order. (laughs) Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah, I I advocate that approach. That's good. Um, So you you touched on um, your kind of love for explaining things. And I think one of the first times... Yeah, I'm, I met you, you were presenting at an event and I was really wowed by your style of presentation. And you really do kind of articulate some quite complex things in really nice, kind of easily digestible and understandable ways. And I wanted to touch a bit on your kind of presentation style. And have you always yeah. found it really easy to present or have you kind of learned <laughs> no. like how to do
1: that? <laughs> I remember the first presentation I did in public was at Imperial College. Mm-hmm. and you had to, it was in my first year, and you had to explain how something worked. And I was going to explain how a photocopier worked. And in those days, can you imagine I had an even stronger accent than I have now? Mm-hmm. And one of the problems with a photocopier is it's got the word mirror in it, which is that thing that reflects. <laughs> I think the English say mirror. <laughs> That's what closest I can get. But it's got a mirror in it. And I knew I couldn't say it. And so, I wrote it on the slide, I pointed to, to it, and I did my usual presentation. I think I come across as quite engaging and stuff, yeah. but I was devastated afterwards because the lecturer always said to me, "Well, that was very good, but what's a myrrh?" and he basically imitated my accent uh. and that kind of floored me initially yeah and then with presentations, because I know I have I used to get head up about my accent because in my head I don't have an accent at all but actually when I listen back it's excruciating you know it's like female version of Ian like and I used to get nervous about presenting I used to do something called top power in British energy that's mm-hmm. another word I can't say power power yeah. top power and everyone would think I was so comfortable up on stage but I'd be practically. Chucking my guts as we'd say in Northern Ireland beforehand with the nerves of it and and the way I get round it is I I actually prepare quite well Mm -hmm. and once I was up there once I got the first line out then I was relaxed and what I need but is an audience if I can't see anyone like I've done a podcast where I can't see anyone Mm -hmm. I get no feedback I can't tell if they're getting it I'm yeah. still rubbish in those situations, but if I've got an audience and I can read them, I just love standing up presenting. But the way I sort of think about it is that I think about my mum. Mm-hmm. So my mum's now in her seventies, but she's she's an intelligent woman, but she knows nothing about the energy market apart from she stalks me on the internet <laughs> and finds presentations I've recorded and watches them. And then asks, rings me up and asks me questions. And actually, that's always, I always think about my mum when I'm trying to present. Someone who's clever, but doesn't know the material. Mm -hmm. And that's the way you need to pitch it for a board. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the way you just pitch it. So it's about never assuming, always trying to engage and tell a story. And think about that story. Like my PhD supervisor said to me, it's like when you're explaining things, it's like a string of sausages. One thing just leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I try and think about the flow. But the reason I got good at it is I think that if you stand up and it goes wrong, it's one of the first feelings in the world. You're sort of up there exposed. Um, But I love it. Yeah. But it's taken practice to get there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's, that's inspiring, isn't it, for others? Is it? Is he kind of,
1: it is about practice. And it's about
0: kind of putting yourself in that slightly uncomfortable place multiple times until it feels more comfortable.
1: Yeah. And it's about, I always think about as telling stories. So many of my teams always started trying to do a presentation by doing slides. Mm -hmm. That is never the way I go about it. I always start with, and I do this when I'm writing a paper as well. Who's my audience? What are the key messages I want to get across? And typically three And how do I want them to think, feel and act afterwards? Mm -hmm. So I always start with that high level and then everything that you're adding, you go, does that help me tell this story? Mm -hmm. Don't just put in all the analysis you've got because, hey, it took you ages and you think it's cool. Does it contribute? So actually thinking about it as a telling a story and what impact you want Rather than starting with a bunch of slides would be my biggest bit of advice. Mm-hmm. But it's taking—I've been doing this for twenty-something years now. It takes time. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. Um. So, Kathy, you're. it sounds like you've had, you know, a brilliant career, and 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 I guess with that, you know, there are everyone experiences challenges. Is there anything kind of particularly that you struggled with along the way, or? Um. Is- I suppose. Yeah.
1: There's been. There's been two. One very early in my career and then one much more recently. Mm-hmm. Um, which felt like big setbacks at the time. So the first one was actually when I was still an undergrad. I got a head injury in my okay. third year at university. And I was all set, you know, I just had to do my finals in my third year. Then I'd go to Cambridge to doing my PhD. I, I was at a party on the Thames, um, in a boat, not not on the Thames. And someone else blew me in the head and knocked me unconscious. And um and I woke up completely drunk. I was teetotal at the time as yeah. well. And I kept blacking out after that. And in the end, I had to give up university for a year. And that felt so devastating because I felt like such I felt like such a wimp. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because this happened in the October and I was still blacking out through Christmas and stuff. Mm-hmm. In my heart, I wanted to give up and go back because if I blacked out in a final, I would have got an unclassified degree and I needed a first to go to Cambridge. And it was only when the head of department and the guy was going to be my PhD supervisor sat me down and said, look, Kathy, we think you should give up for a year Mm -hmm. and come back next year and sit your finals. That'll be much better. It was like a relief because up to that point, I felt like I was just wimping out and I should be able to get through this. And that's one of my problems is that I can never realize, well, actually, sometimes enough's enough and mm-hmm. you have to give yourself a bit of a break. And at the time, one year setback seemed like such a lot because I'd already, I only started uni when I was 20. So it was like, God, I'm going to be 24 before I got a degree. Mm-hmm. But now that I look back on it. I think it gave me an extra bit of grit around myself because I got through that and, you know, I went on to have a good career and, and that was really helpful. Although still now, if I work very long hours, I can black out again. So I have to still really look after myself. Yeah. And actually it's quite a good thing in some ways because it's that little reminder that hold on, you're pushing yourself too hard. Yeah. Um the one bad thing was I had to give up chocolate because that was part of the problem. I I now don't have to give up chocolate. <laughs> <which> is, uh, <laughs> so so that was the first one. Um, but the second one was much more recently. It was about three years ago. Okay. Um because I come across as quite a confident extrovert person and and I am a bit of a worrier. Most people wouldn't realise that about me, but I, I worry about things and stuff. And, and I find myself waking up in the middle of the night, drenched in sweat, worrying about stuff, insomnia, not even to get back to sleep. And then I find my confidence went really badly. Mm-hmm. And it's like I'm I'm one of those people who are quite quick at thinking on their feet. And I used to enjoy mock groups for that because I could One of my friends calls it playing twisty turny because I can always get around an argument. But suddenly my mind was going blank. I was doubting myself. And I thought, what is going on here? I was like 49 years old. What's going on here in the peak of the career? And then after reading and stuff, I realized I'd hit the menopause. So perimenopause, menopause. And when I read about it, it was like, oh, my goodness, the number of women who are in the prime of their career who actually just don't get through this and decide to take a different job or mm-hmm. step back a bit or give up completely. And, and I was in quite a, you know, I was head of commercial at Grid at the time and quite an exposed role. Mm-hmm. In that role, pretty much everyone tells you you're doing a rubbish job the whole time, you know. And then when I was leaving, they were going, Kathy, you can't leave. you You know, you're so good at that job. So there was a lot going on. But actually, when I went to the doctor, I had a very good doctor. And they said, yeah, it's probably the menopause. And I went on HRT. And I checked all the the risk factors. But, you know, within four or five weeks, I was back to my normal self, really. I was probably going through that for nine months. And I'd even had counseling and stuff. Yeah. And it felt like a dreadful time, but it's also something like I'm talking about it here. I never told my boss about it. You kind of a bit, well, everyone just thinks the menopause is hot flushes. Yeah, and Every woman gets it differently. I didn't even get a hot flush, you know, and it was, and one of the reasons I'm prepared to talk about it now is pretty much every woman goes through this. Mm-hmm. They go through it at quite a prominent part of their career. And we never talk about it. Like at Grid, they were great. Um, I actually, we had some seminars on it and different women gave their experiences and stuff. And some of our male colleagues turned up too. And it's good to see that sort of thing happening now. Yeah, it's really for important. For me, that. yeah, at the time it was like devastating. I really thought about giving up my career.
0: Yeah, no, it's, really, it's good. Thank you for sharing that. It's um, a yeah. very personal thing to share. But I think that, that, yeah, you mentioned those kind of sessions and being open about your workplace mm. when you're having challenges can, it's surprising how yeah, considerate your employer can be and how much easier that can make your life, I guess. And um, yeah. yeah, and just that different perspective as well. So hearing other people's stories. And so the menopause isn't just hot flushes for one person yeah. and something for another. Like it can be very different.
1: Yeah, mm. like I asked my elder sister, my sister's three years older, and I said, so. I am going through all that how she says oh yeah I had those symptoms at all and it's just like I oh, really uh, <laughs> I'm very brought... pleased for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she said other challenges I'm sure I don't think anyone's life's
1: plain sailing. Yeah. Well she but... actually works she works in the energy industry as well. She works in the Hinkley Sea so oh, Okay,
0: yeah. Yeah. I oh, got dinner dinner at uh, dinner around your house I imagine is a uh, pretty energy hot debate
1: well, my brother sells diesel generator sets for a living too. So is oh, high, no. He be, uh, <laughs> so
0: is he, uh, uh, he's reevaluating his business model on the journey well, to net zero. Well, he's actually
1: out in the Middle East. So mm. uh, not at all at the minute because mm. if you think about where it's needed in the Middle East, etc., and for telecoms and stuff, there's often no gas there or anything like that. So mm. remote power, diesel is still away. way. They can look at things like biodiesel and stuff like that. But it's still a growing market. He does a lot of work. I did a lot of work in Iraq, Afghanistan, where you need portable power. Yeah. But um, yeah, so still not reevaluating his business model. And I told him we'll never buy another one in the UK anyway. Yeah. So they understand that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's a, it's definitely a good direction. So hopefully, he yeah. will be reevaluating it at some point, coming up with yeah. a yeah uh, new solution. Um. So Kathy, you talked about kind of being your best self and um like how how do you do that like what kind of what kind of techniques and things have you used along the way have you had external support kind of yeah how do you kind of stay true to your values stay true to yourself what keeps you doing
1: i've i've had the thing i found most useful is coaching because i'm um i'm an extrovert thinker so i think out loud so talking to someone really helps me develop um, but to be honest, when I started as a manager, I was probably 31, 32. So I had a year at First Hydro and I was made the head of the little modeling group because I was good at modeling. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, I was an atrocious manager initially. It took me quite a few years. And if any of my ex colleagues, they'll be laughing because they know how bad I was. <laughs> um, because I I was promoted because. I was good at technically, mm-hmm. but I didn't really have those. It's strange because I did have the people skills because one of my passions is teaching. Mm-hmm. And so with my students, I could be really patient. I'm very mentoring. I still help people with A-level maths. If anyone has any unconfident children they need some help with, happy to volunteer. <laughs> I'll know, take you up on that. building and- up confidence i never thought to take those mentoring skills into being a manager mm-hmm. and, and I think part of it was well I'm paying them to do the job so they should be able to do it was kind of my attitude and it probably took me quite a few years to become a good manager and actually stop doing all the work myself mm-hmm. and and mentor my team to to do it so It took time. You know, I I could joke I wasn't, you know, uh, the great manager I am now. I'm still learning. (laughs) however. But I think for me, one of the problems was I'm not completely normal, (laughs) is what we could say. I'm a bit, um, I'm very Northern Irish. I'm quite exuberant. I say (laughs) what I think. I'm frequently told you say the things that other people are thinking. Yeah, And I think that's one of the reasons I get asked to join boards and stuff. Like I really enjoy being on the Regen board because I'll give an honest opinion. I'll try and do it politely or with a bit of humor, but I, I feel it's important to give feedback. And the problem with some of the organizations I was in was I didn't fit the mold of a mm-hmm. senior leader. And, and I tried to jump through the hoops to be more normal. Mm-hmm. And even at EDF, I went on the Senior Leadership Assessment Centre and everyone gets put in one of three boxes. And I find the whole thing a bit traumatic because I could work out what the answer was, but then you have to play nicely in a room with people. Yeah. And I went for the assessment afterwards and they said, I said, OK, which box am I in? And because the, they had been all the spiel. Yeah, everyone's in one of three boxes. And then they actually said to me well, actually, we've created a new box for you. <laughs> <laughs> and initially I was devastated that I couldn't even fit in one of the normal boxes, but now I'm actually quite proud of it. Yeah. And in fact, I had a very good boss there called Steve Moore, and he said, he said, DDF, why do you keep trying to change Kathy? Kathy brings something different. Yeah. You either want Kathy or you don't. And then through grid and stuff, I, most of my coaches have worked with me on what's unique about me and mm-hmm. what I can bring that's different rather than trying to make me fit more conventional ideas of what a senior leader looks like. Mm-hmm. And that way I find I've become much more at ease with it and I've stopped trying to be something I'm not. And just accept it, I can bring a different angle to things mm-hmm. and think a little bit differently, perhaps. I'm quite good at seeing connections between things. And that's that's a good thing when you're a senior leader. Mm-hmm. So I'm much more at ease in myself and I'm probably less striving than I was before. But it's through having good bosses and good coaches mm-hmm. that have really helped me develop.
0: Yeah, well, I'm, gl- I'm glad because I think that's my favorite thing, having seen you kind of operate in the regen Board meeting. Many times, your, your ability to kind of question and yeah, ask difficult questions or kind of highlight things is yeah my favourite thing about you, I think. So please don't yeah. change that.
1: Yeah, thank you. Because the one thing I was always told was I lack gravitas. I don't even freaking know what gravitas is, exactly. <laughs> I think when I talk about my subject, people know what I'm talking about. But yeah. I, maybe I use humour too much or something, but I'm never going to stop doing that because yeah. it can break the tension. I just have to think sometimes about, should I really make that joke now or not? (laughs) (laughs) And quite often, I can't help myself. (laughs) No.
0: Oh, yeah, I do. I do like that. Um, So, Cathy, we're coming closer to the end now. And so I just wanted to kind of touch on um, that. Obviously, the EY network is about encouraging women to springboard from senior management um, to board positions or from middle management through to senior management. And I wanted to kind of understand what makes you really, you know, you sit on a few different um, diversity organisations. You've been a mentor, You're a mentor as part of EY. What is it that makes you kind of passionate about diversity? What do you really want to see change in the sector?
1: Well, I believe in diversity in sort of all its forms. Um, mm-hmm. So because all of the research shows that if you have different perspectives, making a decision, you come to a much better decision. Mm-hmm. And, I have to admit, I'm I'm pretty rubbish in meetings, or I thought I was. And that's because I always sat in meetings where quite often I was the only woman. And Mm -hmm. the first time that changed was at grids where we had quite a lot of women. And there the meetings actually operate a bit differently. You know, we have because I think on average women have a slightly different communication style. Mm -hmm. So I felt much more comfortable for the first time in the way we talked about things. Mm-hmm. For me, diversity isn't about quotas and stuff. It's about getting lots of different perspectives so that you come to a better decision. So I'm, uh, I got elected to the Royal Academy of Engineering about a year ago. Yeah. and I'm on their diversity and inclusion board. They have a problem. They don't have enough women. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at how they change it, but they don't have enough people from different backgrounds and they're not mm-hmm. looking at working class backgrounds and stuff like that as well. Yeah. So I guess I tick a few of their boxes. But it's about how we attract the right people and then how we retain them mm-hmm. so that we have better organisations as a whole. And I really like some of the stuff that Grid is doing as well around... Neural diversity. Mm -hmm. So people with autism. And I think I challenged Regen on this. Remember when you were writing your diversity um, policy or something? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And things like that. Neural diversity with people who think differently. So Mm -hmm. people who perhaps have Asperger's, autism, they can bring a lot to an organisation, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. So it's just about trying to make the best organisation you can. Because mm-hmm. if you have a bunch of middle-aged men, shall we say, who all have similar backgrounds making a decision, you can often get groupthink. Yeah. And I've been, recently it's been kind of interesting because the organisation I've moved to has got fewer women than I was used to. And I mm-hmm. remember joining a meeting late, and the testosterone was flying around Zoom. It was hilarious. You know, We were negotiating with another company and they were going, they can't do that to us. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it was just like, I just, I came online and I listened for a few minutes and I just started laughing and I couldn't <laughs> help it. And they went, what's wrong? And I said, are you listening to yourselves, guys? You know, you've got so emotional and worked up. And you say it's us women who are emotional. The testosterone <laughs> is flying. And actually, just that humour and a different perspective calmed it all down. And I said, right, now we're calm. Let's talk about how we're going to do it. And it just showed that just bringing something a bit different, you don't have to go into that alpha male approach to life the whole time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you find, um, obviously, you've sat in a lot of meetings, I imagine, where you've been the only woman. Like, does that change how you behave in meetings? Is that do you do you enjoy yeah. like, a different perspective I imagine it's kind of swings and roundabouts at times but
1: as I said I'm not very good in meetings because I understand how I'm supposed to behave in a meeting but if someone says something that's interesting I would like to ask questions and follow up and stuff but now there's all the turn taken especially in French meetings I had a lot of those where the person sits and they talk for five minutes and then mm. the next person talks for five minutes and it feels like a series of monologues rather mm. than a discussion and so I struggle with that sometimes because I really like as well because I understand by asking questions and thinking and working things through that's not the normal meeting style so I get told off a lot. Yeah, that, that resonates and with then, me. And then, what I try is, I try, I'll write down my thoughts and um, so they don't go away, or to stop myself blurting out ideas, because <laughs> I do, I, I'll doodle. But then I was told, well, doodling suggests you're not listening. And I said, but I can tell you exactly what they said. And so it's this need to conform. So I work best in small groups of three or four, mm-hmm. or on the big stage and it's been interesting with the board meetings it's kind of different because there is it's not about solving a particular problem it's got more structure to it you know how you're going about it and I find that much easier than a brainstorming meeting where you have to take turns because my brain doesn't work that way (laughs) and I guess anyone who's been in meetings with me will go yeah that's Kathy (laughs) yeah so but I think the thing is you just have to accept the way you are and try and work with it. Yeah. Rather than change yourself because I ain't gonna change now. And some of the things I bring, I think bring that way of thinking differently. So I've tried to work out how to do it constructively so I don't annoy everyone. Yeah. Um, but it still kind of fits with meeting etiquettes.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's good. That's good advice, Kathy. I think so well I could talk to you I could definitely do this for like at least another hour because it's fascinating (laughs) but I should yeah in the interest of kind of keeping podcasts to a limit which people can kind of manage I think we'll bring it to a close there but it's been really fascinating talking to you Cathy and there's loads of kind of nuggets and insights in there so thank you very much it's been brilliant.
1: no thank you very much I've enjoyed it thanks